Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here in Berkeley. This is my first time to Berkeley. Uh, it's not my first time to California, though. I was here um, a long time ago. Actually, the last time I was here, I was in San Francisco in the earthquake, which was, what, about 15 years ago or so? And I'd never been in an earthquake before. That was quite an experience, I must say. People diving under tables and uh, screaming and chandeliers falling. I had no idea what was going on. I was the only one left standing in the room thinking, what, is, what have I gotten myself into? So I thought, well, this time is going to be different. This time is going to be different. And uh, I arrive on Thursday night in the Oakland airport. And uh, it was late at night. There were some delays. It was late in the evening. And so I um, had my GPS system to guide me to the hotel. Well, my GPS system quit working. And so it would click on and click off. And so I'd be on a freeway going somewhere I know not where. And then it kicked back on and rerouting. And oh my goodness, what should have taken me 20 minutes to get to the hotel took me four and a half hours. I was lost in San Francisco in the middle of the night, and it took me all over San Francisco, all over. That was quite an experience. So I thought, you know, this topic that I'm speaking on today really is appropriate, I think. Appropriate, yes. But, uh, but I do love uh, California, and I really am very happy to be here today in Berkeley. So we're speaking today, I'm speaking on the subject, is the Christian doctrine of hell unconscionable? Now, who would sign up to teach on something like that, to speak on a subject like that? Certainly not me. I didn't sign up. Uh, this wasn't my idea. I was actually invited to speak on this subject, and so I thought, okay, I'll do it. I have uh, spent much time thinking about it. I've written extensively on the, on, uh, the problem of evil, and um, sometimes the doctrine of hell is considered to be a subset of the problem of evil. So I have spent some time uh, thinking about it, and the issue of hell is a hot topic again these days. That it is. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it seems to go in cycles. Uh, it becomes a prominent theological issue and then sinks into oblivion for a time. But the doctrine of hell is under fire once again. All right, that's, that's the end of those jokes. Okay. Well, there have been a number of uh, recent publications dealing with the issue of, of hell uh, and life after death. 23 Minutes in Hell by Bill Weiss, for example. Uh, Love Wins by Rob Bell touches on this issue. Um, Erasing Hell by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. There are books out now defending universalism, defending annihilationism. Just a lot of conversation, a lot of uh, discussion going on again about this subject. I think it's an important one for us to look at. And again, the, the title of, of this talk this morning is, Is the Christian Doctrine of Hell Unconscionable? Now, we have a problem right off the bat, though, because one question we have before us is, what is the Christian Doctrine of Hell? There is no official teaching. There was no ecumenical councils that dealt with um, hell explicitly. And so which doctrine are we referring to? Well, that's a, that's a tough subject. So we're going to look at several different views and uh, see if we can make sense of them. So we're going to focus here, uh, briefly at least, on looking at four different positions, four different um, views of hell. Uh, the first view is eternal conscious punishment. Eternal conscious punishment. And this is uh, a traditional view. It was held by uh, many people, including um, Augustine, in the medieval period, more recently, Jonathan Edwards, a famous theologian who defended uh, the notion of eternal conscious punishment. And we're going to come back and look at uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, in a bit. 
This is the idea that uh, hell is God's judgment and wrath on sin and sinful people. And it affirms a notion, it entails rather, a notion of justice that is going to be uh, important for us to explore a bit more deeply, retributive justice. We'll come back to this first view. The second view, um, hell as eternal separation and punishment. Um, In this second view, the notion of hell is also eternal. That is, people will spend eternity there. But it's a rather different way of understanding this eternal eternal hell than in the first position. Hell is seen here as sort of the natural consequences of a sinful life, as a rejection of God. And it is, in fact, uh, a form of punishment, but in... It's, it's not that one is receiving eternal punishing for a finite set of sins. We'll come back to this one as well. A uh, contemporary person, fairly contemporary, who held this position is C.S. Lewis. The third view here is annihilationism, or sometimes it's referred to as conditional immortality. And there are various versions of annihilationism, but the one I'm referring to here is that um, God extinguishes evildoers sometime after death, either immediately after death or after the judgment. But the point is that at some point, um, hell is extinguishment. That is, persons who aren't in heaven cease to be. They cease to exist. So they're not spending eternity consciously experiencing, say, torment, but rather they are snuffed out of existence. A contemporary representative of annihilationism would be um, John Stott. And then fourthly is universalism. And this is the idea that really there is no um, hell, at least no eternal hell, that God eventually brings everyone to heaven. There is no eternal hell. There's no eternal uh, punishment and so forth. Ultimately, ultimately everyone will be brought into heaven. And so uh, there's been some debate uh, recently because of uh, the book Love Wins by Rob Bell. Some have argued that Rob Bell, in fact, is a universalist. He denies that he's a universalist. And if you read the book Love Wins carefully, he doesn't affirm universalism there. He does affirm a view called inclusivism, but not, not universalism. So perhaps in the Q&A time, we can talk a bit more about that if you'd like to do that. All right, so the Bible does have depictions of hell. Now, of course, the, the word hell is not in the Bible, in the Hebrew or Greek, the word itself. We have words like Sheol, Hades, Gehenna. We don't have the word hell, although in some translations, the word hell is uh, translated uh, into English as that. But we do have depictions of this notion in the Bible. We have a number of them. We'll just look at three here. Depictions that seem, at least at first glance, to indicate the notion of an eternal separation, an eternal sort of punishment. Matthew 13, 42, for example, uh, refers to throwing them into the furnace of fire, furnace of fire where they they will uh, weep and gnash their teeth. Mark 9, verses 43 and following says that uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
And then it continues on later in that passage referring to this place where their worm does not die, their fire is not quenched. So again, it seems that there's some sort of eternal notion going on here. Second uh, Thessalonians 1.9, they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. And uh, Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, uh, likewise acted immorally and indulged in natural lust, serve as example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, we could go on uh, citing passages like this, but the indication is that there is some kind of eternal aspect to hell. Um, now, I want to look here for a bit at the traditional view before we come back and look at some of these other views. Again, the traditional view, God's eternal conscious punishing, and I've used the word punishing on purpose here rather than punishment, because the idea here in this uh, traditional view is that God's wrath and judgment are such that persons in hell are continually subject to the punishment of their sins. So it's a continual punishing forever and ever. Um, Jonathan Edwards held a view like this, and uh, a recent scholar, John Gerstner, summarizes Edwards' view, which again is uh, the, the traditional view in some sense. Now, when I say the traditional view, I should make clear, I'm not saying that everybody in the history of Christianity affirmed this view. Clearly, that's not the case, but it, was, it has been a widespread view, this traditional view. So Gerstner summarizing Edwards says this, Hell is a spiritual and material furnace of fire where its victims are exquisitely tortured in their minds and in their bodies eternally according to their various capacities by God, the devils, and damned humans, including themselves, in their memories and consciences, as well as in their raging, unsatisfied lusts from which place of death God's saving grace, mercy, and pity are gone forever, never for a moment to return. That's a hard, hard teaching. That's a hard teaching. Now, the traditional view was defended really from two different perspectives primarily. One from the biblical passages, these biblical passages, we look, looked at a couple of them. But the biblical passages, if you read them carefully and in context, I think, don't entail necessarily that traditional view. So when they say that again, we might have some disagreement. One, one of the concerns that I had with speaking about the issue of hell is that it's a lose-lose topic because whatever I say, some of you are going to be mad as you know what at me probably. <laughs> so, not really, hopefully. The traditional view was defended not only because of the biblical passages, but it was also held and defended because of a particular notion of justice, and that is retributive justice. Now, one contemporary scholar who's done a lot of work on this uh, is Jerry Walls, and his book, uh, Hell, the Logic of Damnation, is one that I would recommend if you'd like to explore this further. Uh, he has uh, carefully laid out this argument here about hell has been um, this traditional view defended um, as a matter of retributive justice, so I uh, owe him uh, for this insight. He's not the only one who's been making this case. Many have, but he's one. And um, we could look at what's going on here this way. And again, this is a significant part of the defense of the traditional view of hell. 
Every sin against God is infinitely serious. For justice to be served, every infinitely serious sin must receive a proportionate punishment, which must also be infinite. God is perfectly just. Therefore, God must punish every sin that is not atoned for with infinite punishment. Now, this notion of hell as being defended, the traditional view, based on retributive justice has been challenged in recent times quite significantly. You see, the idea is that um, on this traditional view, in order to be saved, one needs to repent in this life and be born again. But some persons will never repent in this life, so they will not be saved. And those who aren't saved are consigned to hell, a place of misery and torment. And so there is no salvation for those people. They will spend eternity there. This view, again, this traditional view has been challenged on several fronts, and I want to look at two major challenges to this traditional view of hell. One is a moral objection. And so uh, Christian theologian Hans Kuhn sketches this out briefly this way. He says, even apart from the image of a truly merciless God that contradicts everything we can assume from what Jesus says about the father of the lost, can we be surprised at a time when retributive punishments without an opportunity of probation are being increasingly abandoned in education and penal justice? That the idea not only of a lifelong, but even eternal punishment of body and soul seems to many people absolutely monstrous. So here's a Christian theologian making this claim. And of course, many atheists have made this claim as well. Uh, Bertrand Russell, for example, says this. He says, uh, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Another Christian thinker of recent times, Martin Marty. Martin Marty um, is a professor emeritus at the University of Chicago Divinity School. He makes the claim that Christians, in fact, don't really believe in the traditional notion of hell. And he gives an example to make the point as to why he thinks that's the case. He says, have you ever had a flame close to your skin? He said, just take a match and light it and put it next to your arm. The pain is horrific. But on the traditional view of hell, not only is a person experiencing a little bit of fire on their arm, but in fact they're experiencing fire all around their whole body. And they're experiencing horrific pain forever and ever and ever. Now he says, do we really believe that that's what's going to happen to people? Because he says, if we really believe that, if we really believe, say, our neighbor was going to be experiencing that, wouldn't we be right now doing everything we could to try to help them from that? Wouldn't we be racing over there saying, we, we, we must do something here, please, please, wouldn't we just be aggressively trying to help people? I mean, if you saw some fire, I just saw actually this morning, there was a fire uh, just a couple blocks down, it looked like a huge building was, was burning and there's still fire trucks all around here. I mean, if there were people in a fire, in a building next to you and you saw them there, I mean, wouldn't you do everything you could to go help them so they don't have to experience the, the horror of that? 
Well, says Marty, so too, if we really believed the traditional view, we would be doing out, we would be out doing everything we could to help people. But in fact, we're not. We're not. So either we don't really believe that, or we're not really very nice people. So which one is it? Hmm, that's a significant challenge there, I think. That's a really significant challenge. We need to think about that. So wherever you end up on this, I think that question that uh, Martin Marty raises is one worth uh, deep reflection. So again, the moral notion of the idea of hell has been challenged. Um, related to that uh, is another notion. But before we get to that, let me just uh, stop for a second, and I want to spend a few minutes looking at justice, the kind of justice that this position, this view, uh, the traditional view of hell, um, has been based. Retributive justice is the idea of strict punitive justice. Um, one way of cashing this out would be eye for eye, tooth for tooth justice. Recently, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but um, there's a woman in Iran, Amina Barami is her name, who was approached by another man, by a man who wanted to marry her. He proposed to her and she didn't want to marry him and he didn't like that very much. And he wanted her for himself. So sometime after this proposal, he uh, was riding his bike and he had a can of acid in his hand and he drove right by her and flung the acid on her face. And it literally melted her face. And it melted one of her eyes clear out. And uh, the trauma, I mean the horror, the pain, it was, it was excruciating. And she ended up going through surgeries, I think 15 or 20 surgeries she has had. Somewhere in the process of one of those surgeries, her, her other eye became infected and she went blind in that eye. So she is now completely permanently blind and her face is totally disfigured. You can actually look this up on the internet and see. Um, this is a true story. Her name again is Amina Barami. In Iran, um, there is Sharia law practiced and in some domains, uh, Sharia law allows for retributive justice in the sense of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so Amina Barami decided that she wanted to exact retributive justice on this man. He was going to have to pay. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And the courts agreed. So they scheduled a date to have this man put under and then acid dropped in his eyes so that he would be permanently blind like she is. And there was an outcry about this from the international community and so the court put a hold on it to think through whether they were going to allow this to go forward and then they decided they would allow this to go forward but at the last minute, at the last minute, Amina Barami decided to pardon him. 
She decided it would be better. Better. It would be more just. Not to exact this kind of retributive justice because she saw in this kind of retributive justice vindictiveness. Vindictiveness. Vindictive justice we could categorize as a form of retributive justice which insists on paying a penalty for wrongdoing without regard for the future possible good of the wrongdoer. Now there's another form of justice that's being widely discussed these days uh, in the United States and other parts of the world. Um, I spoke with a uh, law student at the University of Notre Dame recently who says this is a significant discussion um, in, uh, in the law school there of another form of justice called restorative justice, which emphasizes repairing the harm caused by evil actions. It strives to restore to wholeness that which was damaged by wrong and by sin. It's a justice that seeks the good of the other. A justice that seeks the good of the other. It's not a vindictive sort of notion. Now, um, there's a long story to be told about what justice means. Justice in the ancient world, justice in the medieval world, justice in our contemporary world. The word justice, by the way, in the Greek is dikaiosune. And that same word, dikaiosune, is translated in some places as justice. Like, for example, in Plato's Republic, dikaiosune is translated as justice. In the New Testament, it's translated as Righteousness. Righteousness, the same word. And if you look at that word in the ancient and medieval periods, there was no distinction between these two things. There wasn't a separate stream that came later. And I think part of the problem with the way this has unfolded is this notion of justice as being completely separated from righteousness. And this notion of justice as being one of retributive justice only has been very problematic, very troubling, very disturbing. As a matter of fact, I think our own penal system is primarily rooted in a kind of retributive justice. And because of the work of people like uh, Chuck Colson in Prison Fellowship, there's been renewed emphasis in recent decades about restorative justice. And as I said, there, there is a lively discussion today about perhaps rethinking what we mean by justice and how that might be affecting and should affect our own penal system. Okay, we'll come back to this again shortly. The next objection that's been raised to the traditional view of hell is uh, sometimes called the proportionality objection. And it goes like this. Uh, nothing a person could do in a finite period of time justifies infinite punishment. So God treats people unjustly if he sends them to hell. So in other words, the idea is, wow, hell seems all out of proportion to what people actually do. So let's say that you have a person who lives their entire lives doing evil. So let's say they've done evil for 80 years, 80 years of evil. Does that warrant eternal punishing and torment? I, I mean forever and ever and ever. Does it warrant that? 
Well, one reply to this objection is that, well, if it were just a finite sin or set of sins that a person was doing, then no, it wouldn't warrant that. But it's not a finite sin or set of sins because the sin is against an infinite and holy and righteous God. So the sin itself is infinite. And, um, and some people hold that view. And some people, some contemporary theologians and scholars and so forth hold that view. I don't hold that view myself. So this may be an area where we disagree. Um, I don't think that any finite sin warrants infinite eternal punishment. So does that mean I don't believe in eternal hell? No, it doesn't mean that. What's happened in recent times is that the notion of eternal hell is now being defended not on the notion of God's wrath and retributive justice, but rather by an appeal to libertarian freedom and restorative justice. I have there on the PowerPoint retributive justice. That should say restorative justice. That's a mistake. Um, so, three people that we could cite here that uh, sort of are in this camp would be first C.S. Lewis. He says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. That is, people have put themselves in a position where they're separated from God because of their sin and their unwillingness to surrender to goodness. And so they have locked themselves in. G.K. Chesterton says, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. And Dallas Willard goes so far as to say, Hell is God's best for some people. Now that'll rattle you a bit. Hell is God's best for some people? What in the world is he saying? Well, let's think about this for a minute. What do you think hell is? God's worst for some people? Part of how we think about this involves how we think about God. What is God like? Does God love even people who resist Him? Does God love those people? And I would say... Absolutely. God loves everyone. Well, wait a minute then. If God loves everyone, then why doesn't he just bring them into heaven? Well, I think God does want everyone to be in heaven. So then, won't everybody be in heaven? I think the answer is no. Why? Because the power of free will, which is a gift of God, is a very significant one. It lets us choose whether we will follow the good or whether we will decide for ourselves what we make to be our own good, ultimately. But wait a minute, you think. Wouldn't everybody, if, if God allowed them to see the wonder of heaven, wouldn't everybody just say, well, of course I'll be there. Of course I'll go there. No. Why not? Well, because I think, to cite another line from Dallas Willard, the fires of heaven in some contexts may be hotter than the fires of hell 
What do I mean by that? Well, what is heaven, anyway? What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus gives us some real insight into what the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is like. Just look at the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of heaven is this place where we surrender to the king, we surrender to goodness, and we surrender to goodness so much that we're willing to forgive people who have wronged us. We're willing to love not just people who love us, but we're willing to love even our enemies. Some people refuse to do that. Some people refuse. They will not love their enemies. They will not surrender to goodness. They will choose for themselves what they take to be good, contrary to God. And that's what it means to have freedom. And so God saw the goodness of freedom and the goodness of choice. And it's worth allowing people to go their own way. See, I think love couldn't exist without choice. Love couldn't exist without the freedom to choose. But love is dangerous. Some of you may know that. Some of you may have experienced that. Love is dangerous. Love can be harmful. But love is beautiful. Love is wonderful. God desired for love because love is a reflection of the very Trinitarian nature. The three persons of the Trinity have eternally loved each other. And they decided to share that love with others. And so they created persons who could love them and who could love each other and whom they could love. But to truly have that kind of freedom where there is real love, it brings with it the danger that people will choose against that. And in fact, that's what some people will do. Why would they, though? Well, contemporary philosopher, Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne has some insight here that can help us with this. He says, it is a possibility that a person will let himself be so mastered by his desires that he will lose all ability to resist them. It is the extreme case of what we have all too often seen, people increasingly mastered by desire so that they lose some of their ability to resist them. The less we impose our order on our desires, and I would add God's order on our desires, the more they impose their order on us. We may describe a person in this situation of having lost his capacity to overrule his desires as having lost his soul. Through our choices and our decisions, we can give ourselves over. We can give ourselves over to evil desires. We can let them dominate us. We can let them transform us. We can let them rule us. We can let them make us into something that we are not. We have a choice to become one of two different kinds of people. C.S. Lewis here again helps us. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the, world, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find. To those who knock, it is opened. Now, um, I think that Lewis's insight here 
can help us see, along with Swinburne's point, that through this power of choice, we are becoming something. We are becoming something. We're becoming either a creature of heaven or we're becoming a creature of hell. And God won't force us to become either one. He longs for us to become creatures of heaven, but he won't force us into that. And I think this view of hell, as Willard again describes it as God's best for some people, is the idea that allowing people to follow God or not actually in the end gives deep respect to people. It respects them as persons. And I think both the universalist view in which God brings everybody into heaven doesn't respect their freedom. Why? Well, because what if they say, no, I don't want to follow you. Could they really do that? Of course, look around the world. And if God says, I don't care that you don't want to follow me, I'm going to zap you and make you follow me. Is that respecting them? Is that love? I don't think so. Okay, what about annihilationism? Either you follow me and do what I say or I'm going to zap you out of existence. Is that love and compassion? I don't think so. So ironically, I think this idea of hell as being eternal separation from God in which people choose to be away from him because in some sense it's better for them if they're going to choose that. It's better for them to be there than to be in heaven because to be in heaven is to be where their will isn't accomplished. In some strange way, hell turns out to be God's best for some people. It's a place allowing deep respect for human persons and human choice, deep respect. And I think that this view entails taking those depictions of hell that are described in the New Testament as fire and worms and such as metaphorical, not literal. And that's another subject, so perhaps we can um, talk about that in the discussion as well. Well, speaking of discussion, I wanted to leave a little bit of time here for that, so I'm going to stop right here and open it up for a time of Q&A and see where we go. All right, so as I said before, some of you might not like what I've had to say, but I couldn't say anything that you would all like, so this is where we are. Okay, so do you have thoughts, questions, concerns? Yes. Okay, can you repeat that? I, I didn't hear the last part. What would you say to someone that said that if hell wasn't actually like fire and dirty, they would actually choose to go to hell? How would you answer that? Yes, that's a good question. So again, the question is, how would you answer someone if, 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 if you hold a view, as Willard and others do, and as I do, that hell is God's best for some people, if you hold that view, then how would you answer to someone, well, um, what's the problem with it then? Why should I worry about it? Right? Well, I think the reason we should worry about it is because it's not a good place to be. Uh, that's why Jesus uses the most graphic imagery, I think, of his day that people would really understand to say, this is not good. It's not good for you to choose an end that's away from God. That's not good. So he uses basically the, the, uh, the dump of Jerusalem where there's the burning carcasses uh, from, from the sacrifices and such. You have a stench, you have worms, you have fire. 
Um, this is horrible. People wouldn't want to go hang out there, you know, and have, have a party there. Uh, this is a bad place. And so Jesus is creating and he's using this imagery to say, this is bad. Don't choose that end. Don't choose that end. Choose the best end. That is to follow God. So I think that's how I would, that, that's how I would um, reply to that question. That's a very good question. Yes. Are there degrees of hell? Ah, good question. Are there degrees of hell? I um, had a discussion with some of my students recently at uh, Bethel College uh, about this very question. And what I found is, and I, found this, uh, I find this semester after semester, I teach a class called Exploring the Christian Faith. And I would say um, a majority of the students that I've had over the last 10 years um, hold the view that there is, in fact, uh, no levels of hell. And the reason that they hold that is because they think there is, in fact, um, no distinction in kinds of sin. So sin is all the same. Sin is the same. But I think that sin is not all the same. And there are a couple passages that we could look at here. Um, I jotted some of these down for us if we have time. Um, so, for example, uh, Luke 12, 47 to 48, you can uh, look at that if you'd like, but it talks about the um, sort of different kinds of blows that one will receive, whether they're following their master and doing what's right or, or not. Some re- receive many blows, some receive few blows. Or Matthew 11, verses 21 through 24, where Jesus, God incarnate, is um, standing there in the midst of people in the towns like Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he's doing miracles in these towns. And these people are still rejecting him. God incarnate, right there before them, doing miraculous things and good and wonderful things, and they're still rejecting and resisting him. And he says something to them, and I think it's very insightful. He says, woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that I've done here would have been done in Sodom, they would be repentant. So it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than for them. Um, so it seems that you know, Jesus is indicating here that there is, in fact, a uh, distinction. Judgment uh, gets meted out differently depending on um, the depths of sin. And I think that just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, uh, so the example that I used in class is suppose somebody, um, uh, so a, a friend of mine uh, sent an email to me recently. He was very upset about something. He's a, he's a Christian. And uh, he used a, a nasty word, which I won't repeat here in the email. Uh, very bad word. And I, I've known other Christians that might use the GD word, right? GD. Okay. They slipped. They said the GD word. Is that sin the same in God's eyes as the person who is molesting young children and hurting and torturing, killing? You think that's the same in God's eyes? I think sometimes, sometimes as Christians we lose our mind here. You know? uh, we come up with positions that make no sense really when we think about them, but for some reason our theology leads us to crazy positions. And I think that um, we have this intuitive notion of right and wrong, of good and evil, that God has put in us. So we can see clearly, yes, there are moral distinctions. And in fact, there will be differences, um, I think, then because of different types of sin and different levels. Yes? Could you comment on the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus? Yes, that's a very good question. And the question is, would I comment on the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Well, I think one thing that's very important to keep in mind about parables is that generally speaking, parables are, are intended to make one point. 
And there's all kinds of dimensions to the story, but the story is not an allegory. So we're not supposed to be looking at all aspects of a parable, drawing all kinds of theological conclusions from them. That's not the point of a parable. The point of a parable generally is to make one central teaching, a spiritual insight. Now, sometimes parables are so rich that they shower all kinds of truths, but again, the focus is one point. So if you go back and read that parable, what you'll see is that Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter whether somebody comes back from the dead. If they're resisting God now when they have the truth revealed right before them, as many of these uh, uh, Jews were doing, in Bethsaida, for example, when the truth of God and the power of God is right there revealed before them, if they reject him then, it doesn't matter if somebody even came back from the dead. They're not going to believe. Why? Because they have decided in their heart that they're going to choose to go against God. They're going to choose their own end, choose their own good, not follow God. And once a person is moving down that path, then Jesus points out here, if they're really set against God, even a miracle, even somebody rising from the dead isn't going to make a difference. And of course, we know that. Jesus himself rose from the dead, and yet still people uh, resisted in his day, and still, people still resist uh, in our own day. Yes? If you reject uh, the argument that uh, hell is not uh, properly proportional, I would like to hear what are your main premises such that it is the conclusion that you go. Second question I have is that if, if, if you do admit there is a degree of hell depending upon the level of crime that has committed. Would it also logically possible to conclude that there is a degree in heaven as well? Thirdly, wow, there's a lot of questions going here. Okay, okay. Thirdly, uh, if you also go to the point that hell is a matter of a choice because God wants to respect the freedom of people, what about those who never heard the gospel of Christ such that they did not choose to be born in a time and a place? Right. Okay, let me take those in reverse, if I might, and real quickly. And you've just raised the kinds of discussions that could keep us here all day, which are good questions, very important ones, um, and ones that we all won't all agree with, I'm sure. So the first one is uh, about what about those people who have not heard? And I think that uh, one position that seems pretty clear, at least clear to me, is that uh, hell is not a place that people go because of ignorance. Hell isn't a place where people go because they have uh, failed a theology test, right? Hell is not a matter, matter of ignorance, it's a matter of rebellion. So how does God work it out so that those people who haven't heard have an opportunity? Well, there are many ways of thinking about that. Um, if you want to explore um, a fairly sophisticated way of doing that, William Lane Craig has written about this and uh, the doctrine of middle knowledge and how that works itself out. I won't go into that. That would take us uh, quite some time, but uh, he has a thoughtful way of responding to, to this. Um, also, it could be that God appears to people in visions. Um, this is happening uh, quite frequently in the Middle East in Islamic countries where people literally experience Jesus. I was in India recently and spoke with a man from the Brahmin caste who himself had a vision of Jesus. And because of that vision, Jesus invited him to follow him. He ended up rejecting his, uh, uh, his uh, Brahminism and was literally rejected by his family because of that. But, uh, you know, clearly he said, I'm following, I'm following Jesus. So there, there are many ways and lots of other ways too that this could get worked out. Um, let's see, secondly, uh, what was the second question? What are your arguments for uh, rejecting the proportionality 
Okay, so what's my argument for rejecting the proportionality uh, argument? Well, I guess it's more of an intuitive notion that it seems to me that uh, sins are finite. The sins that we commit are finite. Since we're not infinite creatures, we're finite creatures, the sins that we commit are in fact uh, finite sins. So I, I, don't, I don't follow that proportionality objection. I don't think that a sin that we do warrants, uh, even, even uh, a lifetime of sin warrants um, an eternal punishing by God. So again, I think, as I said in the talk, I don't think it follows, therefore people won't be in hell forever because uh, I think they're there again because of their own natural consequences of their choices and because of their um, rejection of God and the goodness of God. All right. Um, well, we're over time, actually, but I am happy to stick around for a few minutes before I fly out and chat more uh, about this, but thank you very much for your patience and your input. Appreciate that. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.